Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. While we're getting ourselves uh, uh, organized up here and PowerPoints poised and ready for action, um, I'd like to again welcome you to our, our panel discussion on international developments and opportunities. Uh, my name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Fellow and Director of the Europe Program here at CSIS. And as Dr. Hamry uh, mentioned, uh, we actually, uh, CSIS is the American partner uh, in an, uh, an international think tank consortium uh, that uh, looks at the geopolitics of the high north. Uh, this is a, a project generously funded by the Norwegian Research Council, and CSIS is extremely pleased. It's very rare that we have an opportunity for a five-year uh, intensive uh, research uh, project. And this has really helped CSIS uh, roll up its sleeves and dig deeply uh, into U.S. strategic interests in the Arctic. There's something about CSIS and Arctic news. Last, um, last spring, we held our, uh, a major Arctic conference. And on the eve of the conference, uh, the Norwegians and Russians announced their historic uh, demarcation agreement. We had the uh, then uh, Norwegian deputy defense minister here who was giving us the, the blow-by-blow, right hot off the press uh, news of that demarcation agreement. Of course, course, today with uh, Deputy Secretary Hayes making for us internal news about a new uh, organization. Uh, I like this. Maybe we'll have more conferences. We'll spur more breaking news on the Arctic uh, here in, uh, in Washington. We are extremely privileged uh, to have four uh, senior and extremely knowledgeable officials um, on the Arctic. And uh, you have your bios, and I know time is short, and we're going to have some wonderful conversation and dialogue. So I'm just going to be very briefly introducing uh, each of our colleagues to give their their perspective, uh, from their perspective, whether that's uh, Canadian, Norwegian, American. Uh, and then we're going to have, uh, finally, uh, a nice wrap-up. Uh, Tim's going to take us through sort of that expert wrap-up of, of these critical issues. No pressure there, Tim. Um, but uh, without further ado, uh, I'd be delighted to introduce Mimi Fortier, who is the Director General of the Northern Oil and Gas Branch of the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs in Ottawa. Uh, we are delighted. Uh, Mimi has extraordinary experience uh, in this particular department. She's been in service since 1991 uh, and Director General as of 2004. And prior to that, she served as a senior geophysicist in the Canadian Oil and Gas Lands Administration. And Mimi, I believe you have a PowerPoint. Where are you, Mimi? Uh, and there you are. And uh, I, if you'd like to speak from the podium, please feel free, or if you'd like to stay there, please free as well. But you're first. First, we let our Canadians uh, guess always first. And then I'll proceed uh, with our uh, with Evan Bloom from the ever-powerful Department of State, according to the Department of Interior. And uh, exactly. And then we'll ask uh, Doug, uh, our Norwegian colleague, and then we'll, Tim will do be fourth and final. So sorry, I didn't. Mimi, you're going to be first. I didn't put us in right order. So please feel free. better. Um, yeah, let me get up that um, slide presentation then. See if I've got it up here. Okay, that's it. Okay. Oh, you're right. That's it. Thank you. I learned from my former colleague at the podium to do to do. That. 
So um, it's a pleasure to join you today and um, representing particularly the Department of Indian Northern Affairs uh, in Canada. I um, wanted to talk briefly about the evolving resource management policy as well as the regulatory environment and also within not only domestic but international policy dimensions. Um, the new challenges and needs that face the sector and Northerners, that, you know, government feels the, the strong need to collaborate with all stakeholders and we hold the position and the importance of research in the Arctic uh, very highly, the importance of integrated resource management, and the importance of learning from each other, uh, including from our other Arctic neighbors. So um, I'd like to just quickly um, talk a bit about the domestic policy um, that is overarching. For centuries, and you heard the same thing in, uh, from Senator Mikowski in Alaska, for centuries the Arctic received very little attention and it was really only familiar to a few, very few other than the Inuit. But climate change, the need for Arctic resources and fundamentally has changed the world's perspective. And so the age of the Arctic is now truly upon us and hence such forums as this in, in Washington. So few countries are more directly affected by changes in the Arctic or much at stake as Canada. We have an important role to play in the ongoing stewardship of the Canadian Arctic, its vast resources and its potential. And that's precisely why in 2007 Canada launched its northern strategy and has increased in investments in the north. The northern strategy represents a whole of government framework to guide federal activities in the north. In support of the exercise of our Arctic sovereignty, the promotion of economic and social development, environmental protection, and the importance of governance. The Northern Strategy provides a framework for a number of departments to work together with many partners towards a vision for the North, where self-reliant individuals live in healthy, vital communities and manage their own affairs and shape their own destinies. The Northern tradition of respect for the land and the environment is paramount, and the principles of responsible sustainable development anchor all decision-making. Sound science is foundational to all four pillars. It provides us the knowledge needed for good policy development and decisions that we've often heard today. Let me just position um, our department. Um, Aboriginal Affairs um, is a large department. Northern Development is one sector of a larger department. And the Northern Oil and Gas Branch is, is one part of the Northern Affairs sector. Um, and yet we manage two-fifths of Canada's landmass. We have um, land management responsibilities beyond oil and gas, mining and uh, water and uh, land resources and the environment. But INAC supports all, f uh, leads actually, was asked to lead the development of the Northern Strategy and we support the ongoing implementation of the Northern Strategy and its four pillars. <coughs> Aboriginal Northerners are playing a larger role in the economy and Northern and Aboriginal Governments are gaining strength as a result of devolution, land claims, and self-government agreements. I'm going to skip through some slides because we don't have enough time, I think, to address all of these things. I'm just going to position um, Canada's Arctic uh, oil and gas situation. And this is uh, a slide that many of you have probably recognized some of the elements from the United States Geological Surveys. Um, uh, oil and gas assessment of the circumpolar world. And in Canada, you'll note that we have three major basins that uh, hold uh, a significant oil and gas resources, the Mackenzie-Beaufort Basin, the High Arctic Archipelago, and the Eastern Arctic offshore bounded uh, with Greenland to the east. 
And this is, uh, this, these areas collectively are estimated to hold uh, one-third of Canada's remaining recoverable conventional oil and gas reserves. And as we know, the Arctic resources, they have, as we've talked about today, have long-term potential, but it also provides us with a long-term opportunity for planning, forward planning and preparedness. And I'll just situate us briefly. Um, we are the manager within the government for the um, lands that are held in right of Her Majesty, the Crown lands. And th so that's the vast majority of lands in the north. There are private lands held by Aboriginal groups. And so our management is that of a landowner. We lease and we collect royalties and we also facilitate and, and coordinate science that's needed for the foundational elements of decision making. That is separated from the National Energy Board, which is the technical regulator of oil and gas activities in the Arctic. And while there's two federal acts that we both operate under, both the National Energy Board and our branch, um, largely the, the National Energy Board looks at the operations element of the Canada Oil and Gas Operations Act, and largely we look at the resource management elements under the Resource Management Act. This has been a useful separation, particularly in light of the debate that has followed the Macondo blowout. And just again to situate us, um, the, the area in light green is where we manage um, the oil and gas lands. And the south of um, this is Natural Resources Canada, our sister department, who together we, we uh, administer and uh, develop the policy uh, for uh, what we call frontier oil and gas. And then we have uh, administration where Canada in the 1980s agreed to share management with coastal jurisdictions. So they've signed an accord with Newfoundland and Labrador for offshore Newfoundland and with Nova Scotia for the uh, Scotian Shelf. We've also, in terms of the pillar of governance and self-reliant north, we are devolving responsibilities. That's not just administration but legislative control for oil and gas to the territories. That was completed in Yukon in 1998. We are in discussions right now with the government of the Northwest Territories to devolve oil and gas to that territory, and Nunavut will, be, will follow in the future. Following this kind of devolution, we'll also look at the aspirations of the territories to have um, a say in decision-making in the offshore. So I just want to situate the current developments. Um, I mentioned there's three major um, basins, petroleum basins, in northern Canada and the Arctic. Uh, we currently offer annual um, uh, exploration rights to the industry um, in two of the Arctic uh, um, areas. And in the Eastern Arctic, we've yet to offer rights since the 1970s. Um, there has been a minimal exploration there. There has been a discovery. Um, it's been likened to a number of Viking grabbins in the North Sea in terms of the basin architecture. We're seeing, obviously, interest coming over from Greenland. But prior to opening the Eastern Arctic to leasing, we would definitely engage uh, stakeholders as partners in designing and being the architects of a strategic environmental assessment prior to opening that area. Um, there's a long history of exploration in the Canadian North, and particularly in the Beaufort Sea. Um, the Beaufort Sea holds probably about, um, we're estimating about f uh, 14 uh, uh, billion barrels of oil and 60 to 65 uh, trillion cubic feet of gas. And that's collectively within an estimated 167 uh, trillion cubic feet uh, in uh, the Canadian Arctic and uh, some uh, uh, 
sorry, I just have the numbers here. Um, there's all different numbers, of course. We have the Geological Survey, the National Energy Board, and we hold our own. Um, so we're collectively, we're seeing about 14 billion barrels of oil in the Arctic, sorry, and the, and the Beaufort would be about 8.2 billion barrels of that. Um, there was obviously um, much more activity in the 1980s. We saw that commensurate with activities in the American Beaufort. Um, there was a lot of dialogue between American Canadian managers, the, the Coast Guard, the geological surveys. We had uh, annual bilateral meetings. Um, now we're seeing a more staged, a more um, a, a quieter approach. Um, things obviously uh, slowed down in the 1990s with the commodity dive. And we've only seen one offshore well drilled in the Canadian Beaufort since then, in 2003. But we've seen a lot of activity in the leasing, and you'll see in the bottom of the slide that um, there were huge bids. These are work commitment bids in the outer Beaufort Sea um, in the recent years. And uh, these were unprecedented bids of about $2 billion. Uh, total work commitments, and we've seen a lot of seismic uh, exploration conducted since then. And not only that, but we've also seen the industry step up and look at um, investing in research. And I've heard a lot about infrastructure. They support our um, research vessel, the Amundsen, in, in bringing in programs to the Beaufort Sea as well. So uh, we had just um, closed a call for bids on parcels that the industry had nominated, both in the Beaufort Sea and in um, uh, the Mackenzie Valley, just last week. Uh, we saw unprecedented low bids in the Beaufort Sea on the shelf in previously explored areas, and we saw unprecedented high bids in the Central Valley. And there's speculation then that we're looking at unconventional resource. The Arctic holds, as I mentioned, uh, a lot of much of Canada's conventional resource base, but the unconventional is totally unquantified, and we've yet to see some um, knowledge gained of that potential. So it's exciting for us to see that this round of bids has drawn um, attention to an unprecedented area. And this uh, map will just qu quickly show you the two parcels that we just uh, let out. And I must say that, I wanted to say that um, with um, the leasing comes a great deal of consultation uh, with our Aboriginal partners in this area with the Inuvialuit and with um, other government governments and other government departments. And so what you'll see is um, a lot of the areas are never offered for leasing, um, certainly off the coast of Yukon um, because of the, fisher the, the fishing spawning areas. We've also never leased areas where there's um, beluga uh, calving. And uh, since then, um, the Fisheries and Oceans Department has created regulation um, to um, uh, really um, step down the, the oil and gas development in these areas. And so it was really quite foresightful in terms of our engagement to set aside these ecologically sensitive areas. Um, I just wanted to note if you, in this little inset, you can get a size of the dimension of this basin if you look at the Jean d'Arc Basin that houses the Hibernia oil field that's being developed currently. So fundamental to um, making good decisions, you know, there's a, obviously, um, as I mentioned, a lot of, of, of engagement of our shareholders, our stakeholders, our investors. Um, and so what we, what we find is that um, 
you know, as we move forward, there's always a, a renewal, and I've heard a lot today in, in Alaska, for instance, about regulatory uncertainty. I think what we wanted to to draw out is that we all should be learning from lessons and we all should make good decisions based on the best practices and the best information and continue to build our knowledge. In, um, in the regulatory environment, uh, we have adopted a, a intergovernmental working group to move to goal-oriented um, regulation, which is a combination of, of performance-based regulation as well as prescriptive regulation. And this allows for the best technological innovation, best practices to be applied to the management plans that, the, that proponents of an oil and gas activity then um, submit in their application to the regulator. But following um, the bids for the deeper, um, deeper Beaufort Sea licenses and following Macondo, the National Energy Board undertook to um, look at its uh, regulatory requirements beyond the goal-oriented, to look at um, the information that's needed in the management plans, the contingency plans that are, that are submitted uh, for Beaufort drilling. So um, it, it also is looking at how it would apply a, a very long-standing Government of Canada policy for same-season relief whale capability. So last year in May, um, Canada's uh, National Energy Board initiated um, this offsh Arctic offshore drilling review it's a three-phase review where they've collected information and knowledge from all the, the stakeholders. There's well over 100 participants in, in submitting that information to the National Energy Board. Of course, the National Energy Board is also looking at international studies, investigations, and, and is definitely making use of commission reports and, and investigations in the Macondo blowout. Um, they're in the second phase where they're sharing a lot of information. They're going down community tours, and this will wrap up with a big roundtable in Inuvik in September. And then everybody's hoping to see this final report in December, particularly those uh, um, uh, industry players who are holding licenses in the deep offshore so that they become familiar with any um, specification in the filing requirements for their drilling. So perhaps much like Shell in the Chukchi and Beaufort, the um, Imperials, the BPs, the Chevrons, and, and the ConocoPhillips are holding off on submitting drilling applications until the National Energy Board um, uh, articulates their new drilling, their any revisions to their their um, drilling requirements, their application requirements. Um, so, just to mention that, um, and I'm skipping a lot here, Heather, for the sake of time. <laughs> um, so, we've, we've all talked about, you know, knowledge and, um, you know, education, um, and we're all struggling with, you know, what do we know, what do we need to know, and, and what don't we need to know, really, um, and how much do we need to know at each stage. Um, there's been, as I said, a long history of exploration in the Beaufort, and private sector interest always brings public investment as well. And no one knows that better than the Inuvialuit, our main stakeholder in, in the north. And so they've been very supportive of, of much of this research and they've been a, a, a very critical uh, proponent in Ottawa to see greater research uh, in the Beaufort. And I, I wanted to come back to the collaboration um, theme of, of the day and cooperation. As I mentioned, when there was um, a critical mass of exploration in the American and Canadian Beaufort Sea, we saw a great deal of exchange on, on many themes. 
We've renewed some of that exchange stemming from the Arctic Council work on the oil and gas assessment um, with our American colleagues on that, uh, authoring that uh, report. And we agreed that it would be critical to have these face-to-face -face forms where we exchange information, make sure that we have, um, that we optimize the cooperation and collaboration on research. So the Canada-US Research Forum took place in 2008 in Anchorage, and it was such a success they wanted more. So we had a second one in Calgary in 2010, and, and everybody's talking about the next one. And the report should be out soon, and I've given you the website on that slide. Um, I just, sorry, just, uh, did I skip? I'm going backwards, aren't I? So um, we, in terms of the, um, uh, you know, in terms of this diagram, it's how much do you need to know and when do you need to know. And when you are opening up an area for leasing, we're talking about a strategic environmental assessment. Um, as I mentioned, we would um, uh, engage stakeholders to find out what are their social objectives, their environmental objectives for the area, and then try and bring together strategic environmental assessment that would note gaps, the risks, and um, um, how activities might go forward and under what conditions. And then uh, what we're engaging in more and more now is a place-based approach to regulation, which is this regional environmental assessment. And of course, as you're all aware, everybody conducts project environmental assessment. And I'll come back to this notion of regional environmental assessment in a moment. So the tools w that we use to, um, sorry, am I going the wrong way? Sorry, I'm going the wrong way. So what we have done is we have collected all of the um, environmental and social information on, in a geographic information system database called our Petroleum Environmental Management Tool. And this is pulled together by the branch because not only do we want all stakeholders to have and, and operate um, and make good decisions from the same database, but it's also a tool in which we can bring this information, these environmental sensitivities, social sensitivities, back to our stakeholders, the new value and to, to sort of retest um, the um, parameters under which oil and gas leasing can take place. We've got this uh, in place for the Beaufort Sea, and we're continuing now to um, apply it in the Eastern Arctic. Coming back to regional environmental assessment, this was a, a, a new program for us where we were able to make the case that we needed more a place-based conversation with all the public. When you talk about a project-specific environmental assessment, there are broader public concerns, regional concerns that are raised. Um, so we felt that there needed to be a, a broader forum for this conversation. And, um, and also, um, as usual, and, and as the science and, and the traditional knowledge investigations continue to evolve, uh, we wanted one place, again, to tr try and have this information for good decision-making, evidence-based decision-making. So last year, we launched this Beaufort Regional Environmental Assessment. Um, it has been funded to the tune of about $22 million. In large part, um, that will go to research. All of this environmental assessment initiative was uh, are authored by partners, not solely by our department. Our department is leading the management and the administration of, of, the, um, of the assessment. 
but it is definitely by design from the Inuvialuit, from the industry, and from regulators, and from science and researchers. And it has a broader partnership in terms of governance as well, and you see the governance in the bottom. A lot of the um, uh, science uh, priorities that came out in this fall in our research committee are almost identical to the United States Geological Survey report that came out just a few weeks ago. Um, just quickly, I'll mention that the Arctic Council work obviously is, is framing more and more in terms of the oil and gas management in, in Arctic countries. And Canada is um, probably going to be pleased to be um, helping Norway lead the prevention work under the uh, Emergency Prevention Preparedness and Response. And again, just coming back to the Northern Strategy, I think that um, I just wanted to finish by saying that it is, um, I think, imperative on all of us for that collaboration, cooperation. This is an international um, private sector and an international industry. And, I th and obviously, a maritime boundary um, in an, uh, something like the Beaufort Sea, um, the waters don't stop the pollution, the waters don't stop even the investment interest. Um, a lot of the infrastructure that you talked about was actually developed uh, for Canadian waters in the Beaufort Sea are now being used both in Russia off Sakhalin and the Kalak was a Canadian um, made, uh, purpose built for the Canadian Beaufort Sea. So again, I just wanted to mention the notion of collaboration cooperation doesn't just stop domestically for us in terms of how we approach management of oil and gas, it's international as well. Thank you. Mimi, thank you very, very much. <laughs> that was an extremely uh, comprehensive uh, presentation. Thank you. Turning to Evan Bloom, who's the Director of the Office of Ocean and Polar Affairs in the Bureau of Oceans, Environment, and Science at the State Department. Um, I, had, I, had, I heard a joke at lunch, and I had to share it. We, oh. we technically call Evan, he's, he's bipolar, meaning that he is the, uh, senior, oh. one of the senior foreign policy uh, experts that looks at both the Arctic and the Antarctic, making him bipolar in his, uh, his work at the State Department. I thought it was funny uh, at the work. Um, uh, Evan is also uh, one of the senior State Department officials who were very much seized with the day-to-day -day, uh, of, of the Arctic Council and was very, very engaged in the preparations for the nuke ministerial and will be working very busily on, uh, on all the follow-ups. So turning to you, Evan, we hope you will help mm -hmm. us understand uh, U.S. engagement and Arctic Council and what does it mean for the uh, oil spill response agreement and future developments. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Heather, and I'm not taking medication for that at the moment, but uh, later <laughs> in the program I may, <laughs> I may need to. Um, it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Uh, Heather, thank you, and uh, thank uh, CSIS, because you've been doing some really terrific uh, 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 work when it comes to Arctic policy, and I've had the privilege of coming uh, to some of that, and obviously when you take Arctic and, and energy development issues and put them together, you have a, a, obviously a, a really a great interest as, uh, as shown by the number of people here. I think when you do your one-day um, uh, uh, session on the Arctic and policies related to reindeer husbandry, you may get a smaller group together. But I would go to a meeting like that, but not everybody I realize who's Next here would, would do that. Um, so in any event, a pleasure uh, uh, to be here. And um, Arctic Council is a very interesting issue. Uh, a lot of people have uh, expertise on that in, in the room. Um, and uh, I've been working on uh, Arctic Council issues for about 15 years or so, and it's a very interesting moment um, in the development of the Council. Um, and I've been asked to provide uh, some uh, insights into what's happening with the Arctic Council as it relates to energy uh, development in the Arctic. 
So for those who, who uh, don't follow Arctic issues uh, so closely, let me provide a little bit of background about the Council. Um, uh, first, that the Council was founded in 1996 as a high-level forum. It's not an international organization, and its focus is on cooperation uh, in the Arctic. Um, the Council has six standing working groups, uh, several of which uh, contribute to issues that relate to the uh, oil, oil and uh, gas activities of uh, the Council. Um, a unique and, and particularly valuable aspect of the Council is that national uh, representatives are joined by permanent participants representing the various indigenous communities uh, of the Arctic. They sit at the table not just as observers but as full participants speaking for themselves and representing uh, the interests of their peoples in, in the discussions. And given the impacts uh, of and potential benefits uh, um, to ind indigenous communities from oil and gas development, this is an important uh, feature of the Council uh, to understand. I should add that while the Arctic Council is growing in, in importance, its uh, mandate may enlarge over, and, and its mandate may enlarge over time. Its primary focus is on environmental protection and sustainable development and not energy policy per se. Thus, the Council um, uh, is only addressing energy in certain particular respects. So, um, for example, two particularly well-known projects were the Council's oil and gas assessment from 2008 and its Arctic offshore oil and gas guidelines um, of 2009, and these are documents that are, are very well worth uh, reviewing. But I want to use my limited time to talk about the current uh, Arctic Council activities. So first, it's already been mentioned, the, the Nuke Ministerial. The Arctic Council recently held its uh, biannual meeting of foreign ministers in Nuke, Greenland. That setting is particularly relevant to today's discussion because, of course, Greenland is an emerging area um, for offshore activity. And as uh, Deputy Secretary Hayes mentioned, uh, it was the first time a U.S. Secretary of State had gone to an Arctic Council uh, ministerial, and indeed she brought with her uh, Secretary Salazar and, um, and a number of uh, others, including Senator Murkowski. Um, and certainly uh, this bespeaks the Department of Interior's interest in oil and gas activity and that department's critical role um, in Arctic Council issues. Um, at that meeting, the ministers mandated the negotiation of an international instrument for oil spill preparedness and response. The U.S. and Russia have offered to co-share uh, this process and Norway may join in as well. We are seeing increased oil and gas activity throughout the Arctic, both uh, onshore and off. Uh, there's a clear consensus that a major oil spill in the Arctic would be devastating to the environment and to communities that depend upon living marine resources. It is clear that a response to a major spill would be greatly complicated by the harsh climate, limited infrastructure, and even our imperfect understanding of the behavior of oil in ice-covered waters. So the goal is to create an instrument among all eight Arctic states that will enhance our cooperation in areas of spill preparedness and response. Uh, clearly, there are many others besides the eight Arctic states that are going to need to be a part of this discussion. 
Um, that includes the indigenous uh, permanent participants who I've already mentioned, and they have indicated a willingness to participate. Um, and the task force carrying out the negotiations will also need to find a mechanism for involving representatives of industry, NGO, regional governments, and other stakeholders. While the preparedness and response instrument is being negotiated, the Council will also work in the vital area of oil spill prevention. Ministers directed the Council's Emergency Prevention Preparedness and Response Working Group, or EPPR, the, to convene experts to develop best practices, guidelines, or recommendations to prevent a spill from occurring in the first place. And uh, this is already uh, mentioned by my Canadian col colleague, as Canada and Norway will be uh, taking the lead on that initiative. So EPPR will uh, clearly have a busy agenda over the next two years. The group uh, had already planned to do follow-up on the recommendations of the recent report of the behavior of oil and hazardous substances in Arctic waters. Um, there is also uh, much that we don't know about how oil responds in different types of Arctic conditions. So this is an area that is certainly ripe for international cooperation. EPPR is also developing a pilot project to create an online tool for use by decision makers so they can learn what response resources uh, and infrastructure exist in different parts of the Arctic. Um, the, the Protection of the Arctic Marine Environment Working uh, Group, called PAME, is starting a project looking at best operating practices for offshore Arctic oil uh, and gas drilling activities. This builds upon the guidelines uh, from uh, 2009 that I already uh, mentioned. It's also important to think about oil and gas activities in a broader context. The Arctic Council's landmark Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, and I've seen many copies of the report uh, because uh, Paul Cunningham from our office lugged, you know, 20 of them here this morning. Um, that uh, landmark report considered the prospects of oil pollution in Arctic waters from increased ship traffic uh, that we are already seeing in the region. The assessment called for uh, enhanced prevention, cooperation, and more uh, robust environmental response capabilities. As oil e extraction increases in the Arctic, bulk carriers transporting petroleum out of the region will certainly pose risks, but ships carrying other cargo could also be, also be the source of, of oil spills. So to mini minimize the chance of that happening, we are uh, working on a binding polar shipping code at the International Maritime Organization. The Polar Code, which builds on uh, guidelines that uh, were already adopted by the IMO, but which will be much more extensive, will cover a range of environmental navigation design and safety issues. The code was supposed to be done r roughly next year, but that's, it's, that's actually not going to happen. It will take a bit more time. We also need to consider oil and gas activities within the context of the many uses of these ecosystems. In addition to creating the task force on oil spill preparedness and response, uh, the foreign ministers also created an experts group to exam examine ecosystem-based management strategies throughout the region. Uh, ecosystem-based management entails looking at 
the big picture of everything happening within an ecosystem. Commercial fisheries, subsistence harvest, protection of particularly sensitive environments or cultural sites, tourism and shipping are among the other activities that must, that must be taken into account when considering the future of oil and gas development in the Arctic. So in conclusion, um, given the large uh, reserves of oil and gas thought to exist uh, in the Arctic, it seems highly probable that activity uh, in this sector will increase in both the short and long terms. Uh, as a result of the unique challenges and opportunities of operating in the Arctic, it is obvious that cooperation with other Arctic, uh, other Arctic countries will be uh, vital to uh, success. Industry and governments recognize that a spill in the Arctic along the lines of what happened with Deepwater Horizon would greatly harm any prospects for future activity. And to avoid that possibility, the Arctic Council is one forum that may be especially useful uh, in enhancing our cooperation. Thank you very much. Evan, thank you very, very much for that, uh, that good deep look into the Arctic Council. Uh, we're very pleased to have Dr. Dog Harold Kloss with us, uh, one of our very important partners in the geopolitics of the High North Project. He serves as professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of o Oslo and adjunct professor at Mould University College. Uh, <coughs> Dog has uh, written extensively on oil and gas development uh, in this region and is really considered a thought leader in Norway, so we're very pleased to have him here. Dog, over to you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, you mentioned that uh, you had four officials in the panel. Let me assure you, I'm not an official. I'm an academic, so I don't represent anyone. So just a, You're an <laughs> a d disclaimer there. But uh, I will also say that um, that uh, I'm a political scientist. I'm trying to going to try to cover now. I think today we had sort of very po uh, sort of policy-based uh, uh, presentations and some from the companies, sort of technical resources. I'm trying to do both, but, uh, but I'm a political scientist, so you might ask me complicated <laughs> geological or technical questions, but my answer will be totally unreliable. <laughs> uh, let me start with a broad and uh, general effect of the Gulf oil spill in Europe, which I think is uh, on the political level the most prominent is the EU Commission's proposal. Uh, to uh, create uh, common EU legislation on offshore oil and gas activity. And uh, as you see, uh, defining the licenses practices with provisions of full safety case documentation, demonstration of technical capacity, guarantee for the financial capability to handle the consequences of unforeseen events, and also to strengthen existing environmental legislation, pollution control, inspection, accident <coughs> prevention, management of individual installations, and of course, uh, taking lessons from the US liability regimes, which we don't uh, have that much in Norway, industry oversight by public authority, and so on and so forth. Uh, this um, uh, this um, effect of, of the of the Macondo uh, in Europe, I think, uh, illustrates uh, uh, a point that uh, your intern uh, Andreas Östhagen has uh, made a point of as regarding EU's general Arctic policy, namely that when you have a policy area in, in the European Union, that you don't have any clear 
uh, strong state interests or stakeholders in, then the topic is up for grab. And this is one case. I mean, 90% of all European oil and gas installations are in the North Sea, in the UK sector, or in the Norwegian sector. Uh, and that Norway is not even a member of this organization. We might be subject to the legislation through the EEA agreement, which is a severe problem for Norway at the moment, I think. This has not gone down very well in uh, the Ministry of Oil and Energy. They are too polite to say this publicly, but I can say it because I <laughs> don't answer to anyone. Uh, that, that, that these oil and gas consumers uh, in the middle of Europe should uh, learn the Ministry of Oil and Energy of Norway uh, anything about safe, uh, safe organization and handling of oil and gas activity. So we have sort of attention here, and, uh, and I hope this, uh, I hope, I, I guess my, uh, the people in the ministry in, in, in Oslo hope that this will die out, uh, but uh, nevertheless I give you some reasons why this is not uh, a very important uh, aspect of the effects of the Macondo. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon or, or the Macondo uh, accident uh, attained extreme high attention in Norwegian media and in Norwegian public debate. Uh, I, I had an assistant which should try to sort of count or make an account of the media uh, news uh, of, of, of this, uh, the, the incidence of news articles on the, on the Deepwater Horizon. This was uh, simply impossible. Uh, so there was a lot of attention uh, regarding this. One of the reasons is that it played directly into an ongoing Norwegian political debate regarding opening up for oil activity in a very vulnerable area along the coast of northern Norway, called Lofoten and Vesterålen. This is an area where the continental shelf is very narrow, and we have very deep water just outside this area, which means that you will probably get into deep water drilling in the area. Um, uh, and also, this is a location, one of the largest in the world, I think, of seabirds. Uh, you have fishery interest here, and you also have a substantial, uh, substantial amount of tourism in this area. Uh, so uh, this was, of course, a combination, at, and, and, the, and the Macondo was used extensively uh, by environmentalists and other political parties uh, regarding this issue, because this was a contested issue in, in, uh, in Norwegian politics. So this process was uh, stopped. Um, or at least postponed, uh, so the, the opening process was stopped. I guess it will might reopen when uh, some people have forgotten about the Deepwater Horizon, but uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, it was also conducted a lot of studies regarding the implications or sort of the asking the questions whether this could happen in Norway. I tried to bring them uh, along, but that will have implied overweight on the flight over the Atlantic, so I skipped that. Uh, all of these uh, studies ended up with uh, the, uh, the uh, energy authorities of Norway not changing uh, the worst case, case uh, calculation, risk calculations that were made uh, regarding the Lofoten and Vesterlund and also the Barents Sea uh, opening, which I will return to uh, in a minute. And one could wonder uh, how you could do that when you sort of are making a worst case assessment and you have actually a case. It's not a hypothetical case, so it's a real case. This, the Deepwater Horizon happened, 
and it implied at least, I guess, 4,500 standard cubic meters for 50 days of oil spill. No, sorry, sorry, that was the, the estimate they uh, operated with, and the Deepwater Horizon represent, I don't know the precise number, but somewhere around 9,000 standard cubic meter for 87 days. So we are still uh, calculating uh, a worst case scenario with half the amount for a less uh, number of days than the Deepwater Horizon. Uh, so, um, the reason is that uh, there are some geological differences. Uh, in the Mexican Gulf, you have seven, 70 discoveries at the same depth as the Macondo, only three on the Norwegian continental shelf. Uh, most Barents Sea areas are less than 300 meters. As you, know, as you understand, I'm, uh, I'm a supporter of this uh, metrification of the US. You, don't, you know this organization? Yeah. So I only talk about meters here. You should do, go home and do the calculation if you, if you like. But uh, you're the only country now, I think, that's not using the metric system. Uh, <laughs> the more important is, of course, the combination between pressure and depth. Um, because of the geological, uh, the, the geology, geology of the Norwegian continental shelf, you do not get a high pressure. When you have deep water, um, deep water oil, you will not get a high pressure. So the combination that you got with the Macondo, with deep water and high pressure, you will not get in the Norwegian continental shelf. So this, I think, was the sort of uh, strong geological argument that you could sort of uh, disregard. Uh, an accident like the uh, like the Macondo in uh, uh, in the Norwegian on the Norwegian continental shelf, but also there was another side of this, and this was uh, then relates to the sort of reaction uh, to to the EU uh, initiatives. Most of the recommendations of the U.S. Presidential Commission are already in place in UK and Norway, and the reason for that you have these kind of recommendations, so that you have this kind of legislation in Norway and the UK, is two previous accidents. I think this is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, in 1980, or at least in 1977, we have a major blowout. I think it's the fifth largest blowout you've ever had uh, uh, globally uh, uh, on the Bravo platform in the North Sea. It didn't kill anybody, but it was a substantial oil spill. More important in Norway was the Alexander Kjelland platform, which capsized in 1980, killing 123 people. And this was a total game changer regarding health and safety uh, in the Norwegian regulation of the Norwegian uh, oil and gas activity. Uh, everything was gone through. All, all systems was sort of, I would say, of the well, I sh maybe I shouldn't say this, but up until 1980, we sort of had the Americans running the Norwegian continental shelf. After 1980, you, you sort of put in place the Norwegian system uh, for health, safety, strong government, strong regulations, participation by labor f uh, workforce, and so on, also on the continental shelf. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit sort of, I, I wouldn't offend my, <laughs> my American host, but I think this is, uh, this is a part of it. And with the Piper Alpha uh, accident in the UK sector in 1988, killing 167 people, you got some of, somewhat of the similar effect on the UK sector. So we're there already. Uh, and this is, of course, also one reason 
that uh, the, the ministries are a bit uh, provoked by the EU Commission. <coughs> so, but if everything is okay, why did you then stop the development of Lofoten and Vesterålen? Because the Lofoten and Vesterålen area was presented by the industry as utmost important in order to keep uh, the activity on the Norwegian continental shelf. It was a policy argument by the industry that you need to open these areas in order to sustain activity uh, on the shelf. Somewhat like we heard about the, the Alaskan pipeline argument also. And the reason we could do this politically was that we were saved by the Russians. And now uh, enters the delimitation uh, treaty. Uh, this is, of course, has been going on for 40 years. On and off, we have negotiated with the Russians without any success, up until now. On September 2010, uh, this agreement was, uh, was, um, uh, was de decided, and it was ratified, uh, or it was uh, in, in, uh, in, you should, the, the background for the oil and gas aspect of this is that in the 1980s, Norway and Russia agreed that you should, we should not, none of us should engage in exploration in the, in the disputed area. And that's for obvious reason. If you're going to draw a border, you better not know what the value of this border is, right? <laughs> so that would be, make it extremely complicated if we were to explore the area and then find oil fields crossing everywhere and then trying to draw a border. So I think that was a good idea. But of course, this also meant that you uh, postponed opening up this area, which uh, by the, what we know about uh, the area east of the, the disputed area, the Russian side, this could be a very valuable, <coughs> valuable area. I'll give you some numbers uh, in a minute. So uh, the point is that uh, the pressure was building up at least when you sort of saw that you got political problem in Lofoten-Vesterålen, the Norwegian political pressure built up that you should open up in the Barents Sea. And getting a clear delimitation agreement with the Russians was uh, essential for, for this uh, development. So on the 7th of June this year, they signed the final ratified treaty. So they, they negotiated the treaty. It was ratified in the Norwegian parliament and the Duma. And they signed this ratified uh, treaty on the 7th of June. Uh, according to international law, you then have to wait a month. So the 7th of July, this treaty entered into force. And on the very, on midnight, between 7th and 8th of July, the Norwegian government started uh, gathering seismic information in this area. This shows you that there's enormous pressure now for opening up the Barents Sea. They didn't wait one minute before they started the seismic uh, information gathering. So I think there's going to be <coughs> full speed ahead in, in, in this area. So this is then, I should have something to point with, but... So you see, this is the, this is the delimitation line. This was the disputed <laughs> area in between here. And it was... Uh, we, we, are sort of, we, we suspect the Russians have done some information gathering in the area, uh, but uh, <laughs> and although not according to the moratorium, but, uh, but uh, also the Norwegian. You see the, the fields uh, on the, the left of the delimitation line, that's in the Nor Norwegian, uh, Norwegian part of the Barents Sea. Uh, you have had a lot of licensing around and a large one, uh, a large one uh, just, uh, uh, just recently. 
So this is very important. I think the 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 the, the, uh, the agreement with the Russians uh, the, uh, has made it possible to to start developing this area. And I think we now have a political goal. Uh, the question now is, what about the resources? And as you see from this, this is of course just sort of assessment. But the Norwegian side is not that very promising. Uh, the proven, proven part of it. The Russian side is far more promising. The disputed area is, of course, very uncertain. So this is going to be uh, to be interesting to to follow over the next years. The Russians have done some seismic data collection. They are drilling, have drilled some uh, fields. Uh, the Stockman discovery, as some of you might know, the large gas field, uh, which is going to be developed by French, Norwegian, and a Russian interest uh, is uh, is in this uh, in this area. Uh, on the Norwegian, so the, what is just one one point regarding the Russian uh, situation? As you see now, the disputed area is on the left of the of the map here. You will see that there is another uh, the Yamal Peninsula, which is far is further east in Russia, which also holds a lot of uh, oil and gas um, uh, fields that has been discovered. So it, it's quite uh, unlikely, I think, or it's mo more likely that the Russians will start developing the onshore Yamal Peninsula uh, before they enter into the Barents Sea. It makes sense to start with what, what you have onshore and develop your infrastructure towards your coastline and then go offshore. So on the Russian side, I'm not so sure they will push ahead. They might be driven into this with Norwegian activity in the in the disputed area, if you find, for instance, a field at crossing the border, and so on. But on the Norwegian side, the Barents Sea is now very high on, on industrial and political agenda. Just finishing with this, uh, we have drilled 80 fields. That's on the Norwegian side of the disputed area. And we have three discoveries, commercial discoveries. You should not compare this with uh, US onshore drilling number of wells. It's not comparable at all. It's a very poor record, actually, if you have three hits, uh, commercial hits, by 80 or 85 uh, drillings in, in the Norwegian continental shelf. So that has not been very promising. Talking to, to companies, they have been not that interested in this area. But just recently, they made a new discovery, the Skrugar field, which opens up the potential again. So now we are on a high roll again. Uh, everybody thinks there's a lot of oil there, uh, and we'll see uh, how this moves ahead. There's been a new licensing round, 10 to 15 wells under planning. The finding costs will be about five times higher compared to the rest of the Norwegian continental shelf. But still, that's in line with the global average regarding production cost. Thank you. Thank you, Dag. That was terrific. Uh, and to wrap this all up, we are delighted to have Tim Tyler with us. Uh, Tim's colleague James Loftus was originally planning to be with us uh, and uh, was feeling under the weather. So Tim uh, very ably joined us as counsel uh, with the international law firm of Vincent and Elkins in Houston. I think Tim brought this humidity up with him from Houston. Uh, <laughs> at least I'm blaming him for it. Um, 
uh, Tim uh, has uh, been uh, 15 years experience of litigation practice uh, with a focus on international commercial and investor state arbitration, a very strong focus on the oil and gas industry. In his spare time, he is the director of the international arbitration section of the University of Texas School of Law Center on Global Energy International Arbitration and the environment. That is a mouthful. Yeah, I was uh, not responsible for the acronym. So, Tim, uh, we're grateful to sort of give us that uh, that expert perspective and hopefully tying in three very strong presentations and figuring out where we go from here. Over to you. Thanks a lot, uh, Heather. Uh, and it is uh, in, in line with the I am not an official. Uh, I'm, I'm a commercial lawyer, and so the uh, so the interests uh, the interests that I'm that I tend to reflect are, are those in, uh, are those commercial players, largely oil and gas companies, reflecting reflecting my background. And the the issue that I'd like to deal with today, and I realize it's in very short compass in order to leave us uh, time for questions, is the issue of uh, that was touched on by Professor Clay's remarks about uh, resources or, or oil and gas fields that may straddle national boundaries, and the idea of maritime boundary delimitation. And if you were to look at the newspapers now, um, you'd assume that the world is, uh, is full of, of, of hot uh, maritime borders. For example, if you consider the recent, uh, the recent uh, cutting of seismic cables by the Chinese government uh, in the South China Sea uh, from, uh, I, think it was, I think this one was a Filipino or it could have been a Vietnamese uh, seismic ship. Um, you consider also the uh, the uh, incidents along the Lebanon maritime, um, the Lebanon-Israel uh, border. You add to that the concern that obviously is expressed in this conference of of, of deep water offshore drilling and, a, and an up spike in an interest of something that used to be confined to, at least the, the the massive technical interest was confined to the Gulf of Mexico. That's globalized, and then you take the inherent kind of lure of the of the Arctic and you wind up with uh, in essence, the, uh, the the general portrayal in the press of things like the the great race in the north, the new hot the new hot war, and the cold climbs, and so forth. In, in essence, what we have is a trope in search of reality. Um, the answer the answer on, on that point is is that I think everybody can can just relax. Uh, international law will ride to the rescue and render a potentially interesting and fascinating topic, quite dull, and really routine in, in practice. Um, it's true that there are obviously framework agreements in respect of the Arctic that need to be, uh, that, 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 uh, remain to be, that remain to be addressed, largely in the environmental area, and which we'll talk about, which will be talked about later. But there is an organic process um, of state-to-state -state solutions, and frankly, commercial solutions in this uh, border straddling resource problem that I think have largely covered, uh, largely covered the map, as it were. So there's not uh, a broad, uh, a broad policy fix. I think that's necessary because the organic kind of finding is there. So the issue that we have to deal with today is, the, as if the question were asked to me by a client, what's the relevant international legal framework for for issues relating to maritime boundaries among the Arctic Five? because those are the nations uh, with the most immediate stake, and the development of subsea hydrocarbon resources in the Arctic. And there's two components that I'd like to touch on very, very briefly. First is maritime boundary delimitation, and the second is this under underlying kind of below-the-radar practice of 
how to deal with cross-border uh, hydrocarbon resources. And that's what we, what we think of generally as the problem of unitization, where you have a, a field with a bunch of leases in it, and you're then combining that field into a, into a unit. Think of what happened in Azerbaijan with the ACG unit, for example. Now, the existing framework uh, deals, uh, deals quite adequately with exclusive economic zones and continental shelves, as you've already heard. Um, environmental concerns are obviously dealt with in, in another set of issues, and we don't have time to cover those today. But for the purposes of determining an overarching legal framework for the determination of maritime boundary disputes, that's covered by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, UNCLOS. I know that the United States is not a party, but a lot of the findings uh, or a lot of the principles as, as reflected in UNCLOS and the Geneva Conventions, which are earlier, are, are largely reflective of customary international law. So the problem, maritime boundary disputes are largely um, addressed by either the multilateral framework of the UNCLOS or by customary international law, uh, of which UNCLOS is uh, emblematic. Further, operating at another level, at a treaty level, are a series of bilateral treaties, which, which in, in the few minutes that remain will kind of track around the clock and correlate with some of the oil and gas uh, fields that we'll be talking about. Um, examples of these bilateral treaties that deal with maritime boundary disputes is, is perhaps the, the most striking example is the, uh, the, the uh, June 2011 uh, signing and, and ratification of the treaty between uh, Russia and Norway having to do with maritime delimitation. But that's not the only example. There's, there's a treaty just, just recently between Cyprus and Israel on, on a similar issue involving the Eastern Mediterranean. So there isn't a multilateral kind of pan-Arctic uh, solution, but again, uh, we think that there needn't be. They're addressed um, by, uh, they're, they're addressed by existing regimes. I could go into detail and in close, but I think uh, life is too short for that. Um, and no, no, I, I don't mean to cast any aspersions on my friends who have spent a great deal of time with UNCLOSE, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's perhaps beyond the scope of the amount of what we have time for here today. Um, but as we uh, think about uh, uh, the, the Arctic resources, uh, the resources in, in, the, in the Arctic, um, it is perhaps um, that, the, as I said, the boundary issues are very largely covered. And more importantly, when you take in, I've left on, I've left on your tables um, copies of this wonderful uh, USGS uh, appraisal of Arctic resources. If you'll open to the second page's maps, which is really what makes the world clearer, um, are, are, are set in the, in the middle two pages. And, and I think by correlating the oil and gas findings on the one hand, or the, the, the province assessments with the existing boundaries, a lot more becomes clear. If we take a look, oops, if we take a look uh, at these two pages, you'll note that the USGS did an, uh, an assessment of, and the reason that I don't have it on my slides is because I wanted to put it on the table so that we could move fairly quickly through it. The United States Geological Survey did a, a study of, 20, uh, of, of these Arctic basins. There are 25 that are believed to have significant hydrocarbon deposits. 18 are within a single state. So, for example, the Stuckmann field uh, is is well within is well within the um, well within the Russian uh, the, the undisputed Russian sector. 
all, uh, much of the, Nor in fact, the entire Norwegian development is, again, all in inside of its own sector. There's only seven provinces that are in, uh, that in which, at a province level, uh, international boundaries are crossed, and those are the ones that I've indicated here, the East Barents Basin and so forth. Now what, uh, and if you consider those provinces with the level of existing treaty coverage, we've got two regions that are subject to cross-border field developments. Again, the East Barents Basin and the Eurasia Basin are now covered by the uh, treaty, the Russia, uh, sorry, the Norway-Russia Treaty, which uh, deals comprehensively with the allocation of cross-border resources and, in fact, has uh, a very, very detailed um, uh, framework that deals with um, potentially cross-border fields. So we're not talking, in, in fact, at a province level, we're talking at a field level. And that's covered uh, by the Norwegian Treaty. And again, that, that's relying on, on, you know, 30 years of good precedent in the North Sea. Um, the Stratford, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Stratford Field, I think, is Stratford Field is one example, and the Frigg Field is another. Those have been around for 30 years. Those state-to-state -state solutions on how to deal with cross-border disputes. So uh, two of these seven provinces are covered by the, by the, by the Norway-Russia Treaty. Um, three regions are also covered by uh, existing treaties that, believe it or not, the, uh, a USSR uh, a USSR-US treaty covers uh, two more of these regions. There's only two regions that aren't addressed by any current set, current set of bilateral treaties, the Amerasia Basin, uh, Canada and the United States, and I think there may be, in fact, even news on that at some point, and again, the Lomonosov-Makarov region, that's that ridge that goes all the way to the pole that covers, uh, that's potentially um, a Canadian-Russian uh, Canadian uh, disputed border. So what we've done here is we've made, and this will be available after the program, a, a table of existing coverage and you see what's covered. But if you um, take the amount of resources that you have on the USGS map and rank them in order of importance and correlate them with the existing treaty framework, um, for example, um, the AM field, which we talked about earlier, one of the remaining fields not covered by a bilateral state agreement, as approximately 10.8% of the estimated oil deposits in the Arctic. These are all estimates, of course. And 3.4% of the estimated natural gas deposits. The LM field, or the LM province, contains about 1.2% of estimated oil and 0.4% of gas. So taking it all together, 88% of the USGS estimated oil deposits and 96.2% of the USGS estimated natural gas deposits in the Arctic face little or no sovereignty-related barriers to exploration. In other words, the, the problem is not uh, a, a problem of an existing, uh, an existing uh, lack of an existing maritime boundary delimitation framework. Now, there is potentially a hole in the area of um, cross-border unitization. And as I've said, um, that has some scant uh, coverage uh, in, in international treaties. Again, looking to the uh, Russia-Norway, uh, the Norway-Russia issue, um, that the 
which does deal with the idea of cross border, which does deal in detail with cross border unitization. And the other areas, um, potential cross border unitization of border straddling hydrocarbon resources are not covered. There are those, some who would argue that the existence of good faith in public and customary public international law would cover that, but um, that's not that's that's not likely. I, I don't think I don't think one can extend the obligation of good faith to to negotiate a treaty to the level that one ought to be required also as as state parties to negotiate a unitization agreement. But again, we have good precedent in the field, and that precedent maps a commercial kind of set of arrangements that, have, that are dealt with by private landowners uh, you know, in the United States and Canada all the time and by, uh, and by um, companies operating on international fields onshore all the time. So there is uh, the possibility of, and there is extensive commercial and now there's state practice dealing with these cross-border unitization issues. Um, there, are, uh, there is a recent treaty between Trinidad and Tobago and Venezuela dealing with the same issue, relying on, again, this, these North Sea precedents. There are uh, standard forms, the uh, Association of American, uh, the Association of, uh, American Landmen, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Landmen, the uh, Association of International Petroleum Negotiators who have form unitization agreements which are dealt with by commercial parties internationally all the time and those have covered the issue. So the idea being that even where there is, where there is a potential hole in regulation that's covered by commercial practice and since a lot of the development is likely to be driven or um, is an area in which commercial stakeholders are going to have an important financial stake, those issues are going to get sorted out at this organic level before there's, uh, before there's any great, uh, great problem at, at a transnational level. And that's essentially what Professor Clays had said. You choose not to, you choose not to explore um, a region in order that everybody can get agreement on it and then seismic will go forth and NOCs will deal with the, uh, will deal with the issue on a company to company basis, uh, wrapping their sovereigns in as necessary. So in essence, perhaps um, nothing new on the northern front, at least in the idea of uh, unitization and maritime boundary disputes. I, I'd love to say it were different, uh, but, but, uh, but, but uh, I can't do so. So those are my remarks, and looking forward to any of your questions. Thanks very much. Thank you again to all for terrific presentations. We have a few minutes for questions, comments, and discussion. If you could... Uh, Raise your hand and we can uh, start the discussion. The presentations were so thorough, <coughs> everyone's stumped. Ah, I see Mead has a, a penetrating question. Actually, to, to the last speaker, thank you all, by the way. Um, what happens if one side doesn't want to unitize and the other side does? Uh, at uh, and can the other can the other side that's going ahead just drill and the side that doesn't want to unitize lose out? Uh, well, uh, it's it's not clear under international law. Certainly, I mean, you could wind up with something like the East Texas field, um, you know, back at the, back at the turn of the last century, where you know, 
if you if you're going to drill and drain my and drain my resource i'm going to drill and drain yours and, and and i think but i think that's where the economic the the fact that it's dark the fact that it's icy the fact that it's uh, impossible to explore and that finding costs are five uh, you know are five times what they are for for conventional fields i i think the economics are just simply going to i just don't think that's going to occur um, given the economics of, of, the, uh, of the cost of getting these out. And I think the Snow White field is probably a good example of that, even though it's, even though it's or, or the Stockmann field, for example, if you take something squarely inside the Russian sector, which is being, which is being um, uh, explored and, and, I'm sorry, developed by uh, a, a three-nation consortium, um, I, I think that is, is, is going to be a practical commercial answer. I, I realize that there is a, potentially fascinating um, dissertation for somebody else to write. Um, please, 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 uh, not me, um, on the issue of, you know, whether the rule of capture obtains in, in public international law. And, and on that, I think, uh, I, I, I really, it's, it's anybody's guess. I think probably it would be viewed as, as kind of a tort at an international level and you can't drain somebody else's resources. But, you know, and then at that point we're, yeah, yeah, how are you going to, right, you've got a very, very significant proof problem. Right. Thanks for writing for us. Yeah. Just a for, uh, short uh, follow-up. If you uh, read uh, the rest of the text uh, following yeah. you, what yeah, you yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, then, sorry. then you will see that uh, there's paragraphs here that say that you cannot utilize a part of the field. You have to do it together. So, so there's no way you can hold back licenses, for instance, on one side of the field if it's a cross-border border field. So, so and, and what happened on, on the, the, the fields that you mentioned in the North Sea, the Statfjord field, I think two or three times, uh, UK and Norway has got together and negotiated a recalculation of the distribution uh, of, the, of the percentage of the field due to new information regarding the reservoir. So you have a, you have a pros, uh, procedure Absolutely. for how you recalculate if you discover that this, the reservoir is actually a little bit more tilted to one side, you have a process for recalculating this. And this, the last one, I think they, they regard as unnecessary. I think they, I don't know how many uh, second decimal uh, they, they changed. So it was so simply they spent more money on doing the, doing the estimation than, uh, than, than the change of the, the distribution. And regarding the Russians, uh, the, the limitation agreement, as far as I understand, the Ministry of, of uh, Oil and Energy in Norway presented the Russians with the, uh, the treaty that we have with the UK, and the Russians accepted this one. Yeah, I mean, so it's a quite, as you said, as you said, it's just a similar treaty that we have in the North Sea. So, and I think that's the principles on which on which cross-border unitization is going is is going to work in, in in any area that anybody that anybody cares about. I'm John Koichev, former uh, delegate to the Governing Council of United Nations Environment Program and graduate of the U uh, U.S. Naval War College. I have a question about the tools, the tools that we need to help the international corporate community develop these wonderful resources that we have. What we witnessed in the last 20 years is the something genial, something that's the victory, the triumph of mankind against the forces of nature. And when we deal with this wonderful thing, we need to think about the tools. When we work on many years on the codification 
and harmonization of international environmental law, we always included, be it in the law of the sea or be it in the other international conventions, the tools. One of the tools are the capabilities. We talked about icebreakers, and we don't have that many of them active nowadays. They might be least. Another very important capability that, that we need to find ways to incorporate, embed in the international treaties is mapping and oceanography and hydrography. And my question is, do we have any mechanism within Department of State any desk officer who is dealing with International Oceanographic Commission and coordinating NSF and NOAA, and are there any prospects for future? I know how sensitive is the area of oceanography, but if I am a magnate and want to drill, I don't want to hit bedrock, or I don't want to hit the most dangerous things, which are the radionuclides left from the sinister heritage of the former Soviet Union, such as the Novaya Zemlya. And let's find a way through the Arctic Council, through the Department of State, and through the two wonderful intergovernmental, intragovernmental groups that we created under the presidential uh, directive and executive order to incorporate the treaties mapping and hydrography and see which vessels could be utilized. We have one in the US Navy, which is excellent. I will not reveal the name. It does the absolute resolution of the bottom of the ocean, and I'm just interested to know what do you think about this? Hold that thought. Brooks, why don't we grab your question as well? We'll bundle them and I'll let everyone have the a final word back there. Hi, Brooks Yeager of Clean Air Cool Planet. This is a relatively simple one for Evan. Evan, you were very deft in your uh, mention that the process to get a mandatory polar code is taking longer than we expected. In fact, it's become something out of a Kafka novel, and I'm just wondering if you could explain why it's taken seven years and why we're going to miss the next deadline, too. Thanks. And, and Brooks, thank you for that question, because I'm going to add a, a little embellishment to prerogative of the moderator. My concern is just looking at how long the, the Arctic Council in that format took to re reach a search and rescue agreement where there was relative agreement. Um, you know, the, how long will it take for an international oil spill response agreement when there is a, potentially a great lack of consensus, but the production will move forward? So how do you move from guidelines to mandatory? How do you move the process forward to keep up with the developments in, uh, in the Arctic? And I'll let you think for that for a second. Tim, why don't I have you, um, and we'll just work down the line, Mimi and Doug, just a two, two closing thoughts, either on the questions or any closing thoughts, and then we'll finish up. Well, I, I guess on, on, the, on the most recent question, I would think that uh, even uh, there certainly is a, a need for a, uh, an overarching um, environmental protocol like this. But, but again, I think on, on there's also the kind of the incentive to the, to the international oil companies and the national companies. Uh, it, it simply, I think it, it, it may well be a race to the top. Um, it would be, it would be uh, economic suicide for, for there to be something less than the highest standard of, of, of safety and environmental protection um, that, uh, an NO, that an IOC could, could operate under, uh, you know, that's the less than the, than the highest standard of, of any of the Arctic Five. 
even if allowed by international convention, I just think as a practical matter in the general councils and in the operational offices, what's going to happen is they're going to have to go to the highest standard. I, I, that's just as a, kind of a practical economic answer. Thank you. Amy, closing thoughts. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And um, the um, reason we pulled out prevention from preparedness and response in the Arctic Council work is because you're looking at you know, where you can get collaboration in terms of responding inter, inter, um, internationally um, between jurisdictions. And prevention is more sort of a regulatory standard. And coming back to what Timothy was saying, I think that we were already seeing that the commercial side, the private sector, has really joined forces. You've got the joint industry program now looking at spill response in the Arctic and devoting billions of dollars to that. So separate from government research in, on all these countries, you do have the commercial investment. Um, we had the Bohasa study under the EPPR of Arctic Council, but I'm sure we can very much rely on sort of that, the economic-driven uh, investigations of setting those highest standards. And that's why I think m most nations are following, I think it was the original sort of the North Sea model of management systems, contingency planning, goal-oriented, these are the outcomes we want from the commercial world. How are you going to do it? You tell us how you're going to do it. Yes, I, I think just two uh, short comments on the company side and industrial, uh, the, 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 the companies. I think uh, I, I agree fully with, uh, with Tim here that uh, it will be uh, catastrophic if you were to be uh, caught in uh, neglecting uh, something uh, on the safety side in, in this area. And I think. But 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 also should have the, the cost aspects of this. I mean, the snow art field in in uh, northern Norway, uh, the gas field, the LNG facilities, with the subsea uh, subsea installations, it have an uh, I esti estimated. Uh, I, I think it's an overrun on 10 to 12 billion dollars on the on this project. It's of course advanced technology. I don't know if there's any other case of an LNG facility in the Arctic area like this one. It was set up in order to sell uh, LNG to the U.S., and then you started this uh, stupid shale gas. So uh, I don't know uh, what's what's happening here, but uh, so so there's a problem, right? So we're back to we're we're back also to the market side that was discussed uh, earlier today. That you, you simply have to have a market for for the for the gas. Uh, finally, on 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 UNCLOS, and I, probably I shouldn't say this here, but uh, I mean uh, the question of ratifying the 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 UNCLOS treaty. I think as long as uh, well, being a little bit pragmatic, I know there are some problems to getting this through Congress, but, uh, but, but as long as uh, the U.S. Uh, is behaving as though they had uh, signed the treaty, and all parties in the Arctic uh, uh, sort of expect the U.S. to behave as though they had uh, signed this treaty. Uh, regarding, for instance, boundary drawers, also the UNCLOS, I think, states that the parties should negotiate this themselves. And sitting in the position I, I'm sitting in now, I think it's fascinating that uh, Norway and Russia could agree uh, on a delimitation agreement, but Canada and the U.S. has obviously, <laughs> well, you we make your own reflections. Okay. Um, well, uh, thanks uh, for the questions. On the question of uh, tools. Um, it's not really the State Department that goes off and does mapping and hydrography, but we do facilitate participation by the U.S. in a number of bodies that are becoming more important in the Arctic in, in coordinating among countries in that respect. Um, it's more for USGS and NOAA, really, as agencies to be doing this, but in 
um, consistent with the question from Ms. Ulmer earlier. It's the sort of thing where budgetary cuts um, start to have an immediate impact and, um, and so it's really a lot of private sector activity and money is probably necessary to get at the resource aspect uh, of it rather than um, U.S. government uh, resources. Um, I'd also, just uh, in terms of uh, boundary issues, one of the tools is, of course, maritime delimitation. And uh, the U.S. and Canada have not uh, been blind to the fact that uh, Norway and Russia have made this uh, extraordinary uh, leap forward. And uh, the uh, Secretary Clinton and her uh, former um, uh, counterpart, uh, Farm Minister Cannon, had uh, discussed the question of the boundary and have asked for work to proceed on that. And that is something that we are doing, not yet as formal negotiations, but in uh, technical discussions with the Canadians. So I think that that is very much on our mind um, because it's, um, it's very important that we bring certainty to that uh, area of the world. Um, and uh, finally, in terms of the polar code, um, well, Brooks, the, the thing is, is that it's taking longer, but in some respects, um, it's for the right reasons because the breadth of the issues, environmental, navigation, design, equipment, all of it, uh, focus on different parts of the, of the IMO superstructure. It was all sent to the design equipment um, uh, section, but they understood that there were environmental issues, for example, that they couldn't handle there. Um, I'm not surprised that it's taking longer. I don't think it's yet uh, a sort of a, a crisis uh, of not being able to work seriously on the issue, but it, it um, because uh, I think there are some reasons for the, for the delay. Well, please join me in thanking our four panelists for their excellent presentations this afternoon.